You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the one another statements of Jesus and how they uh, affect our lives, and talking about testing the depths of our Christian walk. It's important to know uh, how deep we are. It's not just uh, enough for us to simply say we're Christians, because that's just something, it's a title we can say. It's something that we can claim that we are, but there's a test and a model for which we determine whether or not we actually genuinely are following the Lord or not. If it's uh, just something that we've been raised in. So if you say, well, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians, then that's something that you've been raised in. That's a tradition you've been raised in. But the true test of the depth of our Christianity is whether or not this is something that we take outside of the walls of the church, something we do not just on Sunday or when we go to our Thursday night Bible study or when we're around other Christians, but is it something that we carry with us when we are out and about around people that are not believers? How do we conduct our life? How do we live for the Lord? Is our faith only a couple inches deep? Or is it, uh, you know, really deep and rich and committed and showing the, uh, the effects and the fruits of God's work in our lives? I believe the two, true test of our Christian walk is tied up in the one another statements of Scripture. How we treat and how we take care of one another. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how these one another statements fit in, fall into about four different categories. They deal with the different themes. And the first theme that has to do with was love. To love one another as Christ has loved us. That Jesus said to love, I give you a command to love each other as I have loved you. Then we talked about that there's the one another that have to do with humility. Do we serve one another? Do we consider one another better than ourselves? And how it's so easy for us to judge each other, either based on our academic understanding or whether we are spiritually, we consider ourselves more spiritual than someone else or because of the way a person lives or dresses and maybe we're in a better place than they are and say, well, you know what, when they get on my level, then eventually they'll have arrived. And that's an attitude that is a judgmental attitude. It's not a humble attitude and that we need to maintain humility. Then there's a third theme, uh, unity, talking about how we treat one another, how we get along in the body of Christ. And then a fourth one, accountability and encouragement. Today I want to talk to you about unity. Now, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17, We'll be looking at the words of Jesus in verses 20 through 23. Now, John 17 is a great passage of Scripture. If you are in need of encouragement, if you need to kind of dwell on and focus on um, how you're going to get through in life. John 17 is Jesus praying for his followers. And I don't know about you, that's an encouraging thought for me. I've always been tremendously blessed by the idea of Jesus praying, not only for his disciples. We understand that Jesus would pray for his disciples. They're the ones that he's given uh, charge and authority for the, the work of the church. But to think about that Jesus prayed for us and prays for us is a pretty amazing thought because we don't often think about Jesus praying for us. We think about us praying to God. But we don't think that Jesus uh, prays for us. But the book of Hebrews says that he makes intercession for us, which means he prays for us. And that should encourage you today. And so if you ever kind of need a, 
an uplifting thought. Read through John 17, and Jesus says these words in John 17, 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but for also for those who will believe in me because of their word. Now, who does that mean? Who is he talking about there? He's talking about us. Those of us who have believed the testimony of Jesus and have believed the word that has been preached and spoken, these are the people that Jesus is praying for. And what is this prayer? That they may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I want to give some attention to that last part there. He says, you know, uh, as we are one together, the result of that is that they will know that you uh, sent me and that, that I have loved them, that you have loved them like I have loved you. So I want you to understand that today is that Jesus' prayer is that, he, that we would be like the Heavenly Father and He is. That just as Jesus and the Father are one, they are one in the Godhead, but they are also one in essence, one in purpose. They're not in disagreement with each other. They are together as one, and the purpose is for uh, the world that we live in today. And so the desire of, of Jesus is that that same connection that Jesus had with the Father, that we would have that with him, because if we're connected in Christ, then we're connected to the Father, and we're connected with the power that God has for this world to change the world, and we're connected with the glory that's given to the Father when the work of the kingdom is done. His desire is that this may be done so that others may look at us and the way that we act towards each other and the way that we treat one another and that they might believe that Jesus was sent from the Father so that they would know that God loves them and that Jesus was sent for them. There's a connection to Jesus and the Father that takes place when we're one together in unity. And that's a connection I personally do not want to lose. The world we live in is hard enough without maintaining the connection with God. It's hard enough trying to get through life without having Jesus in my life. And the days that I choose to walk without him are the days that I struggle the most. And so I want to maintain that connection with the Lord. So there's a connection to Christ's mission when we're one. People will see God's love and know that they sent him. And people believe in Jesus' message when they walk in unity. Jesus' prayer is that we would be in unity to display his love. When we walk in unity with one another, we walk together in connection with the mission of Jesus. When we walk in unity one with another, we walk in connection with the mission of Jesus. Later, the Apostle Paul would encourage the early church towards unity using similar language. Several times, Paul admonished the church to be in unity, calling them to be of one mind, of one spirit, of one heart. 
And so uh, there's a few references. I'll just refer to them quickly. Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Paul says, make my joy complete by being of one accord and one mind. In other words, being together in agreement and in unity and having one focus. You know, sometimes you can be in church and everyone has a different focus. Everyone says, well, we should be focusing on compassion and helping the less fortunate. And we should, or we should be helping, we should be evangelizing and reaching the lost. And then there's some that say, well, we should be discipling and focusing on those things. And sometimes, because we have different opinions about what's important, we disagree with each other and sometimes we fight with each other. But really, the main focus is to give God honor and glory and to help people see him. And everything else that we do uh, alongside of that contributes to giving Christ attention and giving God glory. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul writes, He prays that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly joined together in one mind and one judgment. In other words, the way that they think and the way that they focus is on one thing. And in their judgment, they should not be judging one another, but they should be uh, judging their thoughts and their intentions when it comes to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, be of one mind and be at peace with each other. Even Philippians 4, 2, Paul writes to the Philippian church asking two women who were having a disagreement with each other, Udio and uh, Syneche, he said to you, you know, you ladies need to get along with each other. Imagine like being the Apostle Paul and write, having to write a letter that addresses a conflict you and another woman in the church has because it's really gotten to that point at this point where he has to address it. But he's saying, you know, you ladies need to get along. You people need to be able to get along. And that's a real stunning admission for us that the church doesn't always get along. We sometimes get annoyed with each other. We sometimes differ in opinion on things. But being in unity was one of the reasons the early church was so powerful. The Holy Spirit works in the church when there's peace and when there's unity. You know when the Holy Spirit doesn't work? When there's divisions, when there's strife, when there's conflict in the church. If you've ever been through a church that's been through a split or conflict, you know that it's there, people see it, they can sense it. Even people who walk in off the street who may not have anything to do with your church and know nothing about the situation, they can walk in and feel attention. I remember when I started working at this church about 13 years ago, and I came in right after a major church split. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I was asked to preach the first Sunday after a major church split. Imagine being in that position. So coming into this situation, and I didn't realize the depths of what the the church here had to work through in order to get to a place where it was healthy and unified again. And people would come to visit, and they'd come to visit, and they'd sit in there, and they would leave, but they wouldn't come back. And I remember talking to one couple about, you know, why did you come back now as opposed to earlier when you first visited? And they said, "We we could sense there was tension in the room. So when there's division in in church, when there's a lack of peace in the church, people who are from the outside, when they walk in, they recognize it. They can sense it. And they don't want any part of it. And you know why? Because the world's full of that anyway. They don't need to go to church to experience that. But they came back after things had settled down and things were a little bit more normal, a little more calm, and they became part of the church after that. It's important to understand that unity is important for the power of the church and the power of God to be at work in the church. 
Now let's talk about unity, what it means and it doesn't mean. What unity doesn't mean, it means that we're all, it doesn't mean we're all copies of each other and that we all think the same way and we all agree on the same things. Listen, if I were to poll this group here and ask you what kinds of music do you like and prefer, if you liked country or classic rock or jazz, I would dare say that there are people that differ in opinion. Now, if it came to worship music, you might all like the same worship music, but that's not always guaranteed either. Some people might like, well, I like the hymns. Some like, I like the choruses. I like the choruses, but only vineyard onward. I don't like any of this new Maverick City worship songs or anything like that. Any song that takes eight minutes, I don't want any part of, right? <laughs> so there are people that like, even in that, it's a broad variety of things like that. I personally love that music. Like, it can go on forever. Let's just dwell in that place of praise forever. But there are people that differ on those sorts of things. We don't, how many agree, how many agree that like, aren't you glad that we don't all have to like a particular style of music to be brothers and sisters in Christ and go to this church? Amen. That's a wonderful thing. But there's difference in politics. There's differences in terms of what's going on in the world. There's differences in terms of medical decisions. There's differences in terms of other things that are like uh, major issues in the world. And how many know we can't solve all of them at once? We can't fix all of them. We certainly don't do any good by arguing with each other over it. We can have differences of opinion. For example, we can all agree that pizza's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> See, like that's the, that's the most amens I've gotten this morning. <laughs> and we're talking about pizza. But we all agree it's good, but if I were to ask you what's, what should go on a pizza, and I went around the room, they'd say, well, you know, it's clear that, uh, you know, Sausage is good on pizza. And some people are like, oh, I can't have sausage. Or like sausage and bacon. And Mary Moglin's like, no, we can't do that. You don't put that on pizza. Or you don't eat pizza at all. And then there's other people like, well, I like peppers and onions on pizza. And I'm just like, if I eat that, that's going to be bad. I don't want to have any part of that. And then you have people like, you know, Gary Radekis who likes turkey giblets on pizza. And you're like, I would never touch that. That was just not something I would do. But it doesn't mean that pizza's bad. It just means we like different things. And when it comes to the church, it's like we all agree we're here for Jesus. But we all have our things that we consider like really important to us, but it may not be as important to somebody else. It doesn't mean that we all have to be in 100% agreement on those things. Let me give you another example. Family. I'm willing to guess that as part of your family, you don't always have the same opinions on everything. Am I right? Even in your own household. Like, you, you know, your, your husband or your wife might completely differ on your opinions of things. For example, like even in terms of worship, you might be a person like the wife might be like, you know what? Pentecost is for me, all the gifts of the Spirit, the weirder the better, just give it to me, all of me. And the husband's like, yeah, I just don't even, I can't even with this stuff at all. But you're in the same household. You're loving the same God. You're serving the same Lord. You might have children that like, you know, they come from a more modern perspective. They're in the world that we live in today and, and they have different opinions of, about the things that are important and the things that are right and the things that are wrong than you do. I'm willing to guess that you work through those things. And you don't throw your 15-year-old out in the street because they differ in opinion than you. <laughs> Usually. But do you understand what I'm saying? The idea of family is that we've come together. We're, we're, we're part of the same group. We don't always see eye to eye. We, we disagree at times. We, we sometimes argue. We sometimes 
uh, tensions flare, but it doesn't mean we stop being family. That's kind of what the idea of unity is. So unity doesn't mean like you have to be like me, you have to think like me, you have to be the same thing as me in order to be part of it. Instead, what it means is that, you know, we may differ on some things, but are we together as one? And understand what I say today, when it comes to doctrine, we're not differing on doctrine. When it comes to the important things, the central core beliefs of our faith, that those things are non-negotiable and unchangeable. You know, the, the Trinity, you know, Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, uh, his return once again. We believe in these things, and, and those are non-negotiable, but when it comes to, like, modes of dress, styles of worship, difference of opinion about which translation is best, those are things that are not nearly as important, and we don't have to be in 100% agreement on that, to be a family. Unity means we're striving towards the same thing, the same goal. And to do this, we set aside our individual wants and needs for the greater goal of God's kingdom, and we can't get those confused. We set aside our own wants, our desires, and needs for the kingdom of God to be at work, and we pursue that as our focus. We can't have unity Without humility. That's why we talked about it last week. If we are prideful, if we're stubborn, if we refuse to admit when we're wrong, then unity will never happen. When we say this thing is so important that it's worth creating a fight in the church over, then we're missing the point of why we're here. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're visiting today, I'm not talking about this because there's major conflict here or anything like that. I promise you this was, message was a few weeks before any of, this, any of those thoughts came to mind. But the idea behind it is that we are, throughout Scripture we see, you know, we shouldn't think of ourselves, we should think of others, you know, and that we should pursue God's purposes. We should put him first in all things. And if we have that as our focus, that means that everything else that has to do with me should go by the wayside in uh, pursuit of God's purpose for us here in his church. We need to consider one another before we consider ourselves. We, uh, you know, need to put others first. But there are people that still kind of say, you know what, I'm first. Or I'm not being fed here. Or this is not ministering to me. They don't want to give. They don't want to serve. They don't want to be involved in any way. And, and, and they consider their opinion the most important opinion in the room. And if we continue to main that, maintain that kind of attitude, then unity as God intended it will never happen in his church. So what do the scriptures tell us about maintaining unity? I, I mentioned those one another statements. Um, in order to be of one mind and one spirit, we must first think of one another. If we want to be of one mind and one spirit serving the Lord, we need to think of one another first. Now, I'm going to refer to a few verses here. I don't expect you to follow every single one of them. We're going to put them up on the screen. I want you to write them down. I want you to be able to have them for later but we're going to go pretty quickly through these rather than to preach every single one of them. But I don't expect you to you know, flip to every page or to try and jump around. You're welcome to it, um, but I've seen the lost look on your faces at times when I've gone too fast, so I just want to give you a heads up. This is going to be kind of like Olympic bobsledding, okay? If you watch that yesterday, there's people running, they jump in, and they hit 80 miles an hour, and then they're like, okay, it's over. So hopefully it'll be like that for you today, but hopefully at the end you'll have actually gotten something out of it. Do you follow what I'm saying? 
So if you're with me, the first one another that we're going to look at is Galatians 5.14. And it says, first of all, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Now, this is very interesting. It's like, okay, uh, the Apostle Paul writes here. He's saying to the Galatian church, which incidentally, all the things that have to do with unity, getting along, not fighting with each other, not doing harm to one another, are written to the church. It's not written to the world. The world knows how to do that pretty well, but the church has to learn not to do that. You know, we're used to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You wrong me, I wrong you. You hurt me, I hurt you. You say something about me, well, let me tell you something about that person. That's how the world operates. But the church has to be trained not to operate that way. And so he says, you know, the, the law is fulfilled in the word love your neighbor as yourself. And the way that that is seen and viewed is how we communicate and talk to one another. So he says don't bite each other and devour each other or you'll be consumed or destroyed by one another. This has to do with gossip and backbiting. If you've ever known, like, why, why do they say it's backbiting? It's because when you turn your back, you can kind of feel someone gnawing at you or feel people taking pieces out of your back because you're like, you know how people say when your ears are burning, you know someone's talking about you. Sometimes you can just know that people are talking about you. And even in the church, that can happen. There are times where people, when they don't know someone else's business, they want to know somebody else's business. And because they want to know somebody else's business, but they're not on the inner circle of that business, they're left to speculate and imagine and to think about what may be going on in a person's life. In church, sometimes people can hug you in the front but stab you in the back. I'm just saying sometimes it's true. Don't shake with your right hand while holding a knife in your left. In other words, what the, the things that you say around people in their presence, when, uh, when they're uh, not present, should be the same thing that you say when they are present. We don't just pick the flowery words and the praiseworthy things to say to people when we see them, and then when we talk with other people, like, yeah, I can't stand that guy. We've really got to work on that and work on how we say it. Think to yourself, what would that person say if they were standing there here, overhearing the conversation that you're having about them to somebody else? Is what is being said something that is accurate and true and doesn't have that color to it that we sometimes add? You know, in sports, they have two different people doing a broadcast because, you know, if you sit and watch sports on your own, they might think it's just too boring for you to just watch and see what's going on without any commentary. So they have one person that does play-by-play, so you know what's going on. And then they have the color commentator who just is there to be funny and to add things and to kind of make things interesting. God doesn't need any color commentators when it comes to our relationships with each other. We need to be people who, when we're uh, talking with people, who we are and what we say to them should be the same thing in private and in public. But what we're doing is when we're talking about each other behind each other's backs, we're destroying one another in the eyes of other people, and we're destroying unity in the church. James 4.11, let's take a look at that. It says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. 
If, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, James is the leader of the uh, Jerusalem church. He's writing this to warn fellow believers not to judge and speak evil of fellow Christians. And this is important, too, because James talks about being careful not to judge people and judge people in terms of condemnation. Now, we are to judge in terms of correction because correction says, I want that person to, to live right in God's sight. I care about their soul. I want to make sure they're doing right. So, for instance, a problem that sometimes happens in the church is that we become so grace conscious that when someone's in, engaging in self-destructive behavior, whether they're addicted to drugs or whether they're doing self-harm or whether they're suicidal or whether they're into a relationship that is, uh, you know, uh, an adulterous relationship, sometimes we say, well, just, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want anybody to be upset with me. But the truth is we need to uh, confront those things with the uh, idea of correction, not condemnation. The idea is we want to bring them to a place where they recognize they don't need to do that and they can find help. As opposed to condemnation, which says, you know what, that person just does wrong things and they don't belong here and we're better than them. And they don't belong in our circle. They can't sit at our table because they're not quite good enough. Speaking evil uh, means that you talk about uh, how much you dislike them. You disparage their character and hope bad things will happen to them. And he warns them not to do this because they're putting themselves in the place of the one true judge, which is the Lord. We should be careful not to put ourselves in a place where we're the one uh, that is judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to someone's eternal destiny. There is already a judge, and he's already pretty well capable of handling it. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to be like donkey to Shrek, you know what I mean? Like we're kind of jumping in, telling them all the things that, the, we, that they need to do, and, 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 and we're helping. and we're do God doesn't need our help to judge somebody. He's going to judge them on judgment day. But we have to be careful about what we say about others. James 5.9 says something similar. It says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. One thing I notice about the Bible is that God's not a big fan of people who grumble and complain. He's just not. But that's where we kind of have people, though. Like, the church kind of fills itself up with, like, well, I don't like this. I don't like the carpet. I don't like the color of the walls. I don't like how long he talks. I don't like the music. I don't like this. I don't like that. And we grumble and complain as though somehow that's a, a spiritual virtue. Because as we look at the scriptures, we see that God responds to those who cry out for help, but he does not respond positively to those who grumble and complain. I'll give you an example of this, okay? Uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, it says the people of Israel, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. After 400 years of slavery, they said, Lord, please help us. Please send a deliverer. We are, we are tired of this slavery. We want to be free. So God sends Moses. And Moses is a pretty good guy. He's righteous. He's, he, uh, you know, God uses him to perform miracles. You know, he wrote the first five books of the, the law, you know. A good guy. He, he, he never once, uh, you know, up until the end, you know, wanted, 
retribution or, or harm to me. Anytime the guy was like, I'm tired of these people, it was Moses that always had the heart of a shepherd and a pastor that interceded on behalf of the people. But God sends Moses to them, and Moses brings them out, up, out of Egypt, and they're grateful for that, but then they're in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, and they're complaining. They don't like manna. They don't like quail. They're tired of different things. They're tired of walking. They're tired of all these things. And so instead of like, crying out to God for help, they begin to grumble against Moses, against Aaron, and against God. It's like, God, you brought us out here to die. Thanks for setting us free, God, because you're just out here to kill us out in the desert. Couldn't you just kill us in Egypt? And, and so what's happening there is you're impugning the character of God. And so when we grumble and complain against others, when we judge one another, you know, uh, you know we've got to be careful because if, when we grumble and complain, we're neglecting to remember that God was good to us. We're forgetting his kindness towards us. You know, when we see that there's problems around us, when we are condemning towards one another, we grumble against each other, God is not honored and God is not pleased by that. It says, be careful when you judge one another because you will also be judged as well. So Jesus talked about this is that, you know, judge not lest you yourself be judged. And the idea behind that is that the standard of judgment that you use towards other people is the standard of judgment that God will use towards you. And oddly enough, ironically enough, when you are a person that lacks grace in your own life, guess what happens when you mess up? Other people are gonna be like, they're going to be quick to point out your failures and flaws. They're going to be quick to pass judgment on you. So when we show grace, when we show kindness, when we show compassion, instead of grumbling and complaining against each other, then we will find grace and mercy when we need it. Now, Galatians 5, 25 and 26, are you still with me? Have you checked out? Okay, you're still here, good. At 25 and 26, uh, it says this, and I think this is important. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. To provoke means to try to get a person angry. You ever had someone that provoked you? Maybe it was your siblings growing up. You know, they would just try and get under your skin. And maybe they did that when they're younger or maybe like now as you're older, you're older, you're, you're, you're well further along in years and now you're, you got that sibling rivalry still. They're still giving you a hard time. They're still provoking you. are still trying to get under your skin. He says, don't provoke one another. Don't uh, be envious or conceited. Envy means that you're jealous of something that someone else has and talk about them behind their back. Sometimes they, people will wonder, well, well, how much money they have, how they got it, or being critical as they go on vacations, or being critical of the car they just bought, the things they just had. It's like, where did they get the money for that? It's really none of your business. Am I right? Oh, they go on a vacation. It's just like, I wonder where they got the money for that. It's none of your business. Let them enjoy. You know what? I used to kind of get like all like, oh, how come they get that and I don't get this? You know, instead now as I've gotten older, I'm just like, I, I'm grateful for them. I'm happy for them. Enjoy. Be excited. Be happy. Be blessed. I hope that God blesses me that way someday. Instead of being like, well, I wonder. How about... And that's where gossip comes in. Well, they probably got it from selling drugs. 
Or we make up ridiculous nonsense about like, oh, they must have done that through dishonest gain. I bet they don't tithe. Or whatever the case might be, we say all kinds of terrible things about each other because we're kind of envious of each other. Or sometimes we'll question a couple's parenting skills because their child might be away from the Lord. We make assumptions about them. Grown children doing what grown children do with their own opinions and their own decision-making That's not a reflection on you, mom and dad. A reflection on them because sometimes kids just do their own thing. Kids, children, adults sometimes make their own decisions and they'll differ from yours. And so when we kind of say, well, you know, if they raised them right, that wouldn't have happened. You don't know that. You don't know that for a moment. We can't be in someone else's shoes and walk their journey. But we can be gracious Because a lot of these things come to mind by way of a temptation, a thought. To think about a person in a way that we shouldn't think of them. And we can choose what to to do with that thought. We can either take that thought and go, nah, I'm not giving that a time of day. Or we can dwell on it. We can let our emotions, let our, our will get involved in that and then become negative because of it. When we make assumptions about one another and talk behind them, about them behind their back, it's hurtful and not helpful. What's the remedy? Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I do that, Pastor. Okay. But ask yourself a question that will bring it home a little bit more. Would this be something that the Holy Spirit would want me to say? I'm talking about in conversation. I'm talking about one another. Would the Holy Spirit want you to say that? If he heard you say it, would it honor him or would it grieve him? How would the Holy Spirit respond to the situation? Would he respond the way that he speaks to us? Which, if you've ever had the Holy Spirit speak to you, he's gentle, he's correcting, he's very peaceful. But if he hears us, are we responding the way that the Spirit would respond? Or are we saying things that would grieve the Spirit? To be walking in the Spirit means that we're staying in tune with the way that Jesus would answer the way that the Spirit would lead us to say. Sometimes we kind of put a spiritual veneer over our bad attitudes or our outgoing personalities. Well, I can't help it. They, you know, I just, I speak, I speak hard truth. Or I give tough love. That's what I do. And we kind of spiritualize and say, you know, that's okay because that's the way I am. But think about how the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Are we walking in that spirit or are we walking in our own spirit? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and those who are over you and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort those who are faint-hearted, uphold the weak, And be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both yourselves and all. So Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica with some words of instruction, and he tells them to recognize their leaders as those who serve in the church, and don't be difficult. Don't be unruly. I know we think of unruly as like kids running through the hallways or teenagers playing ball outside. We think that's unruly. But you know, adults can be unruly too. He encourages them to be peaceful towards one another, not to be difficult 
towards each other, towards the leadership. He tells them to make sure you don't repay evil for evil, but always pursue what is good for all. See, the world tells us when we've done something, something's been awful done to us, we need to do something worse to them. It is human nature to seek out revenge and retribution. But as Christians, we're not to be controlled by our human nature, but to be controlled by God's Spirit. So there, there, Paul talks about it in Romans 7 that there's two parts of us at work, our human nature and our spirit. Our spirit reminds us of what's the right thing to do. It reminds us of Scripture, reminds us of the grace that God's extended to us. Our human nature says, that really made me mad, and I'm going to let everybody know how mad I am. That person wronged me, and so I'm going to give it back to them a double portion, to use a spiritual analogy. I'm going to make sure that they regret. That's human nature. That's repaying evil for evil. The, the nature of the Christian is to, to respond to evil with good. So the Holy Spirit is inside of us. He lets us know what is pleasing to God, what isn't. He gives us a check in our hearts when we want to get revenge. It causes us to pause and to reconsider whether or not we should do it. His conviction should stop us in our tracks and cause us to repent. In other words, the minute we think of like, I'm going to do that, and that's what I'll do. The Holy Spirit should bring conviction to our hearts and say, God, I'm so sorry that I even thought that way. That that even came to mind. That that even came. It's really crazy to think about how a very good person can get twisted around just for the desire to do harm to somebody for revenge. Some of the most awful things that you can think of come to mind. Like, well, maybe I could do this, maybe I could do that. You should stop yourself. The Holy Spirit should say, hey, wait a minute. That's not how I would respond. That's not how you should respond. That's not how our Lord would respond in this situation and it should stop us and cause us to repent. When we've been wronged, we should go about it the right way. When we've been wronged in the church, we should bring it to the leadership to resolve it. And every matter must be established by two or three witnesses, examined by the church elders. And if the person has, been done, has done wrong, they should be corrected. This doesn't mean we should take matters into our own hands and enact revenge. So the right response is, someone in the church has wronged me. Instead of going, I'm going to wrong them. Or I will just talk about it to everyone that I know and wrong them in the sight of others. That's not what we're supposed to do. Instead, if there's someone that's wronged you, you should have the matter established by another person, two or three witnesses. Then you should bring it to those who can moderate the situation. Bring it to the church leadership and allow them to be able to bring correction to the situation if it warrants correction. That way we're going about the right way in God's sight. And believe me, there's times you might have done that in your church and it's been a dumpster fire, okay? You've tried to do the right thing and that church has been a disaster. In those situations, you were every bit justified in leaving that church because that wasn't the way it was supposed to be handled and it wasn't handled the right way. Because sometimes people as humans get it wrong. But we try and go about the right way. We don't take matters into our own hands. Final verse and thought for this morning. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. It says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good and necessary for edification, that it might impart grace to the hearers, 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know, saying we're a Christian isn't enough. Going to Living Hope Church isn't enough. Although you should come to Living Hope Church. Sorry, I had to put the plug in there. Your words matter. Your actions matter. The way that people will know that you're a Christian will be determined by how you act and treat one another. They, the world has a very different definition of what it means to be an evangelical Christian today. You are working against that mindset. You have to be the one that kind of changes the way people view others. And the only way that you're going to do that is by how you live, how you act, and how you respond to people. Our words matter, our actions matter. We should examine the words we say. Do they encourage and lift people up, or do they tear people down? Do we compliment, but we give a backhanded compliment? It's like, hey, that wasn't as bad as last week when it comes to worship. It's like, okay, I get it. It's like, that's not really a compliment, but if that's the best you can do, okay. But like, we shouldn't be doing these things that kind of tear people down. We should be doing things that lift people up. We should filter out that which is our human nature and speak what is good and godly, not just publicly, but privately as well. Choose not to give place to the things that allow the devil to put a wedge in between you and other people or a wedge in the church. Now, when it comes to a wedge, think about it this way. When you have two blocks that are put closely together or you have, um, you know, uh, two, two things that are just super close, in order to get those things apart, you have to wedge them apart. So usually that means it's a triangular-shaped wedge and there's a hammer involved. So if you've got two blocks, you know, marble blocks that are together, you've got this wedge, you put the wedge in the middle and you put the hammer down and you create a little bit of space in between the two. And when you have that little bit of space, then you can put something in there to pry them apart. The same thing holds true when it comes to the church is that the devil wants a foothold in the church. The way that he gets a foothold is by do, finding these things that divide you, the little wedge issues that make you different and say, you know what, he's not like you, she's not like you, uh, you need to avoid her, or you need to speak out against them because they are different than you are. And I'm just sick of those kind of people. When we do that, the devil's just kind of taking that little wedge and just hammering away at it until there's a little gap in there. And now that he's got a gap, he's got a foothold. Now he can fit a crowbar in there. And now he can start prying things apart and really doing some damage. If you've ever had to open something with a crowbar, you know that it doesn't end up really nice at the end. If you ever had to open up a, a, a strong box or if you have to take something apart, usually a crowbar is destructive. Usually it doesn't mean like I can put this back together after I have a crowbar. Usually after it's done, that means it's pretty much destroyed. That's what the devil wants to do in your relationships, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with fellow believers, in your relationship with people that you know that don't believe, in your relationship with others in the church through hurt and unresolved issues. Ephesians, 3, uh, Ephesians 4, 31, 32 encourages us not to handle things like we used to or even the way that you would want to according to your human nature but instead handle things like Jesus did as people who are recipients of the grace of God. Handle things like someone who's received grace from God. Have you been forgiven? 
then forgive. Have you been shown unconditional love by God? Then love like he did. Have you received patience and understanding from God? Then show patience and understanding. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Please understand, it doesn't mean what they did was okay. It doesn't mean that things have to go back to exactly the way they were before. Trust has to be rebuilt over time. What it does mean is that I'm doing what Christ did for me, and I choose to be Christ-like even if others aren't. Here's a point to consider, and this really made me think as I wrap things up today. You know, when we stand before God on Judgment Day, or the day that you die, when you get to heaven, you'll stand before man, and the scriptures tell us that we'll be uh, held to account and judged on every action that we did, good or bad. When we get to heaven, God's only gonna judge us for our actions. He's not gonna judge uh, other people's actions towards us. So when we get there, when we stand before God, we're not responsible for anyone else's actions but ours. And using their bad actions as a reason for why you did evil towards them is not really gonna fly in God's eyes. Because in that moment, he's not judging that other person. In that moment, he's judging you and how you responded to it, what you said, what you did, how you tried to ruin that person's life or how you tried to undermine them or the things that you did to try and get revenge. In that moment, God's not gonna be like, he's not gonna have the two of you standing side by side. He said, well, you were wrong and you were wrong. Guess what, you're both wrong. So I would rather stand before God knowing that, okay, I've done everything that I can do to do right in God's sight regardless of what the other person does because God's gonna judge that person for what they did. So they're not gonna get away with it. That's one of the things we're like, well, they'll, they'll get away with it. No, they won't because we trust that God is a God of justice and that he will hold people to account. Even the people that, that did horrible things, even the people that, that died in prison or you know, did awful things and then killed themselves, God will hold them responsible. But I don't want to be tied to them by my actions because of what they did. I don't want to say, okay, well, I, God, I did this because they did that. And God's like, oh, that's okay. He's not going to say that. He's going to say, no, no, you are supposed to do what's right. Are you not my child? Do you not bear my name? Are you, aren't you supposed to respond differently? And that's how we should act towards others. So let us live in such a way that shows that we are truly followers of Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to be and stay connected with the Lord this morning. As the worship team comes up. Our first verse that we talked about this morning. Jesus said that his prayer was that all believers, those who believe this message would be one just as he and the Father are one. Same focus, same essence, same direction, same heart, same spirit. His desire is to see that in us, that same connection that Jesus has with the Father is the same connection that he wants us to have with him. And I want you to know about you, I don't want to lose that connection with Christ. I don't want to lose his grace at work in my life. I don't want to lose his power at work in my life because of anything that's going on in this world or with anybody else. So if we could just stand for a moment as we get ready to close this service today.
And it's God speaking to your heart about something that you need to just let go. Is he talking to you about the way that maybe you think about, treat others? Then let him work in your heart. Maybe there's some things that you need to ask him to forgive you for. Yes, you've been hurt. Yes, there's been things that you've been through. But by the same token, God is able to heal those hurts. He is able to restore you and help you to respond with goodness and grace. Don't forfeit God's work in your life because of what somebody else did to you. But instead, say, you know, I'm going to do what Jesus said I should do. I'm going to honor that prayer and I'm going to be connected with him no matter what. So let's pray. God, we just ask for your forgiveness today for times that we've, Lord God, been uh, angry, upset, hurt. The times that we've wanted to take matters into our own hands. Lord, we just pray that you would heal hurts that have been experienced, Lord not only by people of this world, but sometimes from God's people too. Sometimes we hurt each other. We don't always mean to either. But Lord, help us to forgive, to not judge, but to move on, Lord God, and show grace. Lord, I pray that you would also help us, Lord God, to just be able to respond, Lord God, with forgiveness and kindness. Lord, work in our own hearts, Lord, when we've maybe look at the way that we talk about others, and maybe you need to deal with some things in our life, Lord, that there are times that like the thought comes to mind, but we shouldn't dwell on it. That we're each responsible for our own lives before you. So, Lord, would you change us, transform us into the image of your Son. Help us to become more like you. Help us not to grieve your Spirit, because we want to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So I pray today, Lord God, move us closer to you. May we be one in unity, one in purpose, one in heart, for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.